Good evening. It's good to be with you this evening. If you would turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The letter of 1 Thessalonians and the end of chapter 2. If you've ever read much about warfare, you know probably better than I do. There are, of course, many tactics that um, may have been employed. Maybe you're into history, World War II or something like that. You may read about ground assault or air assault or amphibious assault. Um, there might be some kind of frontal assault or maybe an ambush, um, some kind of formal warfare in a field, maybe guerrilla warfare, some kind of feigned retreat, some attack from a defensive position, or you could be leading an army into a trap or exposing them to weather to which they're not accustomed. Maybe certain examples from history come to your mind. Or you might try to stretch their supply lines and attack those instead and make it impossible for them to sustain an offensive in your territory and be able to continue in the fight. Well, in spiritual warfare, the devil uses many tactics. Sometimes he might go for a full-on frontal assault, like you might think of with someone like Paul, who faced many direct oppositions, or Jesus, who met the devil himself, with direct attacks on them. Or maybe he tried to undermine the kingdom, spread lies to the people of the kingdom of heaven about their king, seeking to convince them their God is not good, like he did with someone like Eve. And Adam, or Job, because Job thought everything that had happened to him was God, even though God had allowed the devil to do it. But in the case of believers here in Thessalonica, this letter is written to believers in the city of Thessalonica, not long after there was a riot that had formed in the city, and Paul had been chased out. They were jealous of Paul. They didn't like his influence. They were accusing him of uh, sedition against Caesar, and he was threatened for his life. In the case of Thessalonica, one of the dangers Paul saw for this flock, and he's writing to them about this, was, you could say, an attack on their supply lines. As Paul continues to write in this letter, as we've considered up through verse 16, he's, you may have noticed, talked a lot about his own ministry. And the theme he's driving home to this church is that God preserves those that he calls by sanctifying them. He continues on in verse 17, you'll notice as we read, he's writing about his love for this church. And what he highlights in two separate places is how the devil may attack them in his absence, or in fact, I believe, because of his absence. Paul is absent right when they needed him most. And the devil's going to attack right there. He'd just gotten chased out of town. These young believers are very vulnerable in their faith to many lies and misleading forces away from the truth that their shepherd, Paul, you could say, had taught them. And as he repeats again and again this theme that God will preserve you through this all the way to heaven on the road of sanctification, one of the gifts that he points to, one of the gifts that God gives to his church, 
to this flock for their sanctification was the Apostle Paul. If you think about Ephesians chapter 4, God gives gifts to the church. Apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers for the building up of the saints, for the work of the ministry, so that they would be rooted and grounded in the faith, so they're not tossed about by every wind of doctrine. Paul was one of God's gifts to the church. And he's writing to them, along with his co-workers, Silas and Timothy, Silvanus, here in chapter 1, verse 1, as the people who had led them to Christ and established them in their faith. And Paul's concerned here, I believe, that they know that although he is not present with them in person, he hasn't forgotten them. He hasn't abandoned them. One way God helps us to heaven is by giving us pastors, teachers who lead us there. So, of course, the devil would love to disrupt that relationship. That's Paul's concern here. The, the flock has just endured, you could say, a great scare and a sudden departure of a beloved friend, their shepherd, Paul. And what does a shepherd do when the sheep have just been rattled by, by an attacking wolf, right? The shepherd speaks tenderly to them. He assures them of their love. He's not riling them up anymore. He's calling them by name, speaking calmly to them. And you notice that's what Paul does. We'll start reading in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, and we'll read down through the end of chapter 3. God's word says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager, with great desire, to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope, our joy, or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. We'll leave those last three verses for another time, but 
from chapter 2, verse 17, down through chapter 3, verse 10, I believe we see here a picture of a good shepherd. Paul is a good shepherd. And as a good shepherd, Paul loves like the good shepherd. Good shepherds love like the good shepherd. And Paul's love, I believe, appears in three ways. You may have paragraphs in your Bible. In the first paragraph there in, chap in chapter 2, verse 17, I believe you th see three actions. Starting in verse 17, you see Paul's love in desiring to, just to be present with them. And then in verse 1 of chapter 3, he's recounting his love to labor for their spiritual profit. And then in verse 6 down through verse 10, He's, he's seeking certainty about the condition of their soul. He cares about their soul. He loves them, and he loves their eternal soul. He wants to be with them. He has worked hard for them, including trying to teach them and prepare them for this moment. And now he's relieved because he had been seeking to know for sure whether they had kept the faith. So a good shepherd, in the example of the Apostle Paul, he is eagerly desiring to be present with, you, with his sheep. And you see in verse 17 that that desire to see the sheep increased even when they were unexpectedly removed. In verse 17 he says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager, he's making a comparison, with great desire to see your face. Even though we were removed from you, that desire did not diminish. This word, having been taken away from you, it's related to the Greek word orphan. We were bereaved of you. We were suddenly, unexpectedly ripped from you in a way that's traumatic as an orphan, having just suddenly lost his parents. We are absent in person. You may have a note there, in face, not in spirit or not in heart. It's not in, we're not there in person, but we're there with you in our heart. And then he you see the connection there. We're all the more eager with great desire to see your face. We're not with you in face, but we want to see your face. We want to be with you. Does this actually happen? Certainly it happened in the case of the Apostle Paul. In English history, English religious history, there is what's become known as the Great Ejection in the Church of England in 1662. I'm reading uh, the lives of Philip and Matthew, Matthew Henry right now. And in, at that time, there was a requirement for all of the pastors who were employed in the church, in the Church of England, to agree to use the Book of Common Prayer. And there were many who did not do this for one reason or another. In their conscience, they could not sign on to do this. And then there was this great ejection where they were kicked out of their pulpits. They were kicked out of their churches. They couldn't come back. And Philip Henry lived for many months. He was a pastor in England under this, this steady threat of being dragged out of the pulpit. This, this act of uniformity was coming down the pike of, um, of the law, and it looked like it was going to be signed, and then it was signed, and every Sunday in his diary, he didn't know if he was going to be able to preach that Sunday. He was getting warned, you shouldn't do it, they're going to come for you. And then finally, in October of 1662, he was ejected from his pulpit, and he preached a farewell sermon that day on Philippians 1.27, and I'm really uh, quoting here from uh, the biography. Philippians 1.27, Only let your conversation be as becomes 
the gospel of Christ. This was the sermon that he preached, the verse that he preached on. In which, his son says, as he saith in his diary, his desire and design was rather to profit than to affect. He wasn't trying to get the people to cry at his leaving. He was trying to help them. And he says this in his diary, it matters not what becomes of me, and then he quotes scripture, whether I come unto you or else be absent, but let your conversation be as becomes the gospel. His son writes, his parting prayer for them was, the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation. Thus, he ceased to preach to his people there, but he ceased not to love them and pray for them and could not but think there remained some dormant relation betwixt him and them. You may have heard in the Catholic Church when the monks tried to move out of the world into the monasteries. It's always true in that case that you can take a man out of the world, but you can't take the world out of the man. What Paul is saying here is something like that. You can take the man out of the church, but you can't take the church out of the man. He loved them. And he eagerly desired to be with them, even after he had been unexpectedly ripped from them. Like he writes to the Corinthians, he wasn't about what he could gain from them. He wasn't seeking yours, but you, he says to the Corinthians. I want to be with you. I love you. And that desire increased when he was unexpectedly taken from them. And in verse 18, this shepherd's desire to see his sheep really remained, despite a devilish hindrance. For we wanted to come to you, he says in verse 18. I, Paul, more than once. And yet, Satan hindered us. He says, Satan hindered us from coming to see you. Satan hindered Paul from going back to edify the church. Why would God allow this? Why wouldn't God do this? The church obviously needed Paul. Should Paul have said that God prevented him from going back? Perhaps he could have. Because God does ultimately rule over and limit the devil. But in his wisdom, God does allow the devil to work his mischief over this world. Not because he can't stop him. But because he chooses not to fully end his evil until the appointed time. If you read the book of Job and you... Come If you read carefully those opening chapters, chapters 1 and 2, and you realize how the devil could only do what God allowed him to do, that will strengthen your faith. Or if you read the book of Revelation and you see how many times it was given to them to take peace from the earth, to bring famine upon the earth. Who is giving? Who is allowing control? Even for great destruction, God is sovereign, even over the devil. But Paul says here, the devil, Satan, hindered us. One writer says this, if we will keep in mind that we are always in spiritual warfare, wrestling not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness, then whenever the wicked molest us, they fight under Satan's banner and are his instruments for harassing us. More especially, he says, when our endeavors are directed to the work of the Lord, it is certain that everything that hinders us proceeds in some way from Satan. 
if only this sentiment were deeply impressed upon the minds of all godly people, that Satan is continually contriving by every means, in whatever way he can hinder or obstruct, the edification of the church. We would then, if we could keep this in mind, we would then assuredly be more careful to resist him. We would take more care to maintain sound teaching, of which that enemy strives so keenly to deprive us. What does the Bible say? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Certainly when we meet an invitation to sin in our own lives. For us, while we might not always know whether God is providentially hindering us from something or the devil himself is opposing us in spiritual warfare, we can know for certain from a passage like this, that the devil will stand in the way of the edification of the church. That's what he's doing. He does do this. Do you think that the devil would oppose the edification of our church? Have you ever thought, well, maybe I'm just not important enough? Is it possible that that's the reasoning of pride from the one who is proud? The devil's not omniscient He doesn't see men's hearts. He's not omnipresent, but he is a cunning predator. And he's seen millennia of men, and he knows them. And he knows how to tempt them, knows how to appeal to them. Do you think that the devil would tempt any one of us away from the edification of the church? He does. He will. And perhaps his best trick is to convince us that we're not important enough for that. He will oppose God's work. But as a good shepherd, in the pattern of Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, Paul's desire for these people to be with them, he's still got it. It hasn't gone away. He's trying. He loves them anyway, even though the devil is opposing them. And that you could say that this desire to see the sheep from Paul It's really burning in him because of, I think we could call it the eternal stakes. There's something eternal at stake. Look at verse 19. For who, it's them, is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? And what's his view here? In the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? We sang about that. He's coming. We don't know when. Could be any time of the day or night. God knows. But Paul is laboring to see them stand blameless before God. If you look down at chapter 3, verse 11, he eventually commends them to God to do this work of completing their faith. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And this is, this is what he has been laboring for, but what he ultimately trusts God to do in them Verse 12, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at, here's the event again, the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. Jesus Christ wants to see his bride purified so that he can present her to himself, spotless. 
This is what Paul labored for to see in the churches that God sent him to. And Paul's desire is burning for these people because the stakes are eternal. He's, he's talking about a crown of exaltation, a crown of glory, the kind of crown that they would win at the Olympic Games, this perishable, this, this uh, crown of leaves that would eventually die. But no, this is an eternal crown of glory. If you turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5, Paul uses this language elsewhere in Philippians chapter 4, but Peter uses it as well. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he's writing to the church and he turns specifically to the elders of the church. 1 Peter 5 verse 1, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. He's speaking to elders, and God will give them a crown when that chief Shepherd, after whom they are modeling themselves, appears. And some have asked, is Paul glorying in anything aside from Christ and him crucified? No, Paul is not glorying in these people, not because he is self-ambitious, but he longs to see them in glory perfected so that he can rejoice that God has brought them there and completed them. They are his joy. It's for an eternal soul that he is laboring for this church. But because he himself couldn't go back, he chose the next best option available to him, even though it came at great cost to himself. And what was that? You see that this is just one of many sacrifices that Paul made for those that he loved. And a good shepherd does sacrificially labor in love for the spiritual profit of his sheep. But what does he do first? Therefore, verse 1, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent, what is he talking about? Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ. Paul is making an extraordinary sacrifice because he's uncertain about their faith. What kind of sacrifice would he have made? Well, He's sending Timothy away. He had Paul, uh, it was Paul and Silas and Timothy all together. Certainly together they were teaching and witnessing to the resurrection of Christ. It does seem from other passages that there were times when Paul had to work as a tent maker. But when he had other co-workers with him, he could stop doing that and devote himself entirely to the word. If you read Acts 18, right after this, once Timothy comes back from Thessalonica. Paul is able to devote himself entirely to the word because he's not having to work every day for his own living. So he's giving up comfort. He's giving up partnership, certainly, encouragement, perhaps making himself a burden to others because there's no one there to support him. But the point is, Paul is making, really, 
a great sacrifice because he's uncertain about their faith. He wants to know. And isn't this what the good shepherd does? Making an even greater sacrifice of giving his life for others? Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep, Jesus said in John chapter 10. Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice of his life, even as Paul here, as a good shepherd, makes a great one in order to know about their faith. Because what does he know? Paul, like every good shepherd, knows that sheep who are under pressure, they need help in their faith. See that in the rest of verse 2. We sent our fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. What did Paul know that they were going to face? The possibility that their faith, would, their faith would be disturbed. This is why he's making the sacrifice, to strengthen and encourage them about their faith. If you ever go to the gym, maybe you see, maybe you experience this yourself. You ask somebody to give you a spot. You need a spotter at the gym. Why? Because you know that under pressure you're going to need help, Right? If that weight comes down on your chest or on your throat or something like that, you could get seriously hurt. So that person comes up behind you because they know that your arms are under pressure and they're likely to fail. So they're going to help you. Paul sends someone to help them. Or in relationships, like a parent who knows their child is nearing something that you know is going to be difficult for them. So you just, you're just a little more available. You're a little more close. You're a little more tender because you know the kind of pressure that they're facing and where they're vulnerable. A good shepherd knows that sheep under pressure need help in their faith. So he sends Timothy. This is why he makes the sacrifice. And what had he been doing? What had he been laboring for, for their spiritual prophet? He had been seeking to persuade his sheep that, in fact, God appoints suffering for all of them. See that in the end of verse 3. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. We have been appointed for this. Appointed for what? For suffering. God appoints suffering for his people. For indeed, he says in verse 4, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction or that we were about to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. He wants to know that they haven't been disturbed by these afflictions, that they haven't been knocked away from their faith through, through deception or force of this pressure, of this mob that isn't a mob in the square anymore, but their citizens and neighbors and fellow tradesmen and craftsmen who are putting pressure on them. You believe what Paul taught. I hate that guy, Paul. You're his friend? They're feeling pressure. And Paul had labored to persuade them that God appointed this. What are we talking about with, with God-appointed suffering? Well, Paul writes to Timothy 
all those who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus referred to this with his disciples in John chapter 15 when he says to the disciples, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute, persecute you. He says in verse 25, but, if they have done, but they have done this, they persecuted Jesus. To fulfill the word that was written in their law, they hated me without cause. This is, Jesus being hated without cause was one way that he fulfilled the law. And he's saying, my servants aren't greater than me, their master. Can we say that a, a sheep isn't greater than the shepherd? If the shepherd had to be hated without cause, must not also the sheep suffer? Of course, again, we're not talking about suffering for our own foolishness, for our own sin, but suffering for the sake of righteousness. It's one thing to learn it, though, and it's another thing to experience it, right? As you know, he says, he's appealing to their memory of what they learned, what he had taught them. As I thought about this, uh, perhaps you've been to what is known as a birthing class, right? When your wife is getting ready to deliver a child, they have these at the hospital, they're getting, trying to prepare you for everything that's about to come, right? Getting you excited for the day, and everybody's warning the moms about the pain of childbirth, Every, every mom's trying to wrap their minds around what they need to do. But when the labor pains come, right? What's the question? Am I okay? Is everything okay? How can everything be normal when it hurts so much? And it's drastic. And that's what this suffering is like. Is everything really okay? I didn't expect it to be this hard to hurt this bad. And Paul is saying, yes, this is exactly what we told you about. Everything is okay. This is what God appointed for you. Isn't that sometimes what stands in the way of strong faith? An unwillingness to suffer? We don't want to live godly in Christ Jesus because it will bring pain. Paul sought to persuade them that God has appointed this for you. This isn't out of control. This isn't out of his plan. This is his plan. This is the road that he walked. And as their shepherd, Paul also believes that the devil opposes all spiritual progress. You see that in verse 5. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, lest somehow the tempter might have tempted you. And our labor would be in vain. He is a tempter, isn't he? he? He solicits people to sin. I've been told that the best place to fish for bass is a place like on the edge of a river where something like a, a weeping willow is hanging down over the water. Maybe a a rotted log under there or something as well. I've been told this is a bass haven, maybe even bass heaven, I don't know. They have protection from predators. There's plenty of life down there for them to eat. They have plenty of places to hide 
so that they can prey on smaller fish and other animals coming around. And what's the role of the fisherman when he goes to that spot? The role of the fisherman is to convince that fish to be discontent with where he's at, right? He's in a really good spot, but what do you have? You have a lure, and you want to convince him, it's better out here where I can catch you, right? He really is in the best spot for him, but he needs to be made discontent. He needs to believe that there's something better out there where your fish hook is, right? What does James chapter 1 say? Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Drawn away as Christians, aren't we? We're in a good place. We're in Christ. We have everything that we need for growth and health and protection and flourishing. But we can be tempted, and the devil knows how to capitalize on it. Dissatisfaction and offering some kind of replacement. It doesn't hurt so bad over here. He's a liar. He's a forger. And you know what? He never forgets the hook. There's always a hook in that. And what Paul is concerned for in these people is that a prime time when the devil will pounce on dissatisfaction to offer an alternative road is when they're not expecting the safety of our spiritual state to hurt as bad as it does. I'm losing money. I'm losing friends. Is it okay? The devil will come and offer an easier way, a way that hurts less, a road that maybe you can see further down. It has fewer rocks on it. But what happens every single time that wicked desire is conceived, we're talking about temptation. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Paul is sending to find out about their faith, lest somehow the tempter might have tempted them. And all of Paul's labor, the, spirit, the labor that he had exerted for their spiritual profit would be in vain. One of the greatest burdens, isn't it? It's not knowing. And Paul's finite just like the rest of us. But God knows everything. And thus, when Paul had to wait and he didn't know, what did he do? He prayed. He prayed. And his many hours in prayer ended in really a wonderful report back from Timothy upon his turn, return. Now that Timothy has come from us, come to us from you. And a good shepherd, I believe, prayerfully seeks comfort about the faith of his sheep. He's comforted first by their unrestrained love. Timothy's bringing news of their faith and love, signs of life, you could say, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we long to see you. They hadn't cooled towards Paul just because he had left. They had actually wanted to see him just like he had wanted to see them. And not only is he comforted, he's actually encouraged, even in, in his own difficulty, by their signs of life, their act of faith. For this reason, verse 7, 
brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith, or encouraged, that word could be translated. What difficulties was Paul facing? Well, when he left Thessalonica, he went to Berea, and those same people followed him there and chased him out of there. And then he went to Athens, and he met a lot of resistance to the preaching of the gospel. And then he went to Corinth, and we just read about what he was facing in Corinth. Paul was beset by many discouragements, but he's saying, I'm hearing about your faith, and it thrills my heart. He's encouraged, even in his own difficulty, by their active faith. Like cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a distant land, Proverbs 25 says. And Paul really is relieved. He's just relieved when his sheep are showing proof of mature faith in verse 8. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Why did, God, Paul, why did God send Paul to that church? So that they would be built up, so that they would not be children in the faith, knocked about by every wind of doctrine. And they have stood firm. They're not like kids who are facing just those smallest waves at the ocean, and one, it just knocks them over, and then they get their head up, and the next one smacks them in the face. No, they stood firm. They were still standing. And Paul really feels indebted to God when God is so thrilling his heart through his people. See in verse 9, For what thanks can we render to God for you in return or in payment for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? How can I pay God back for how much this has encouraged me? I am so excited to hear this. It rejoices my soul. And he's motivated. What thanks could he give, perhaps? Finish the job, verse 10. As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. This is what he wants to do. He's, he's motivated to go back and do what God had allowed him to start because he's so thankful to hear and comforted about their faith. How can we apply this? Certainly there's plenty of application for pastors and how to be a good shepherd after the pattern of the good shepherd. But if I can make the application to all of us, if one of the ways that God sanctifies us is by giving people who minister to our faith that we need when we're going to face pressure, don't you think the devil would love to attack that relationship? God preserves those he calls by sanctification. And a key way that God sanctifies us, no man can sanctify us, but God does give shepherds to the church, under shepherds, over whom he is the chief shepherd, but shepherds after his own heart, like Paul. The devil has many ploys, and this is one of them, to hinder the relationship of a shepherd toward his flock and the flock toward its shepherd whether that's by tempting a pastor to relate in an unloving way through, like we read in 1 Peter, lording it over them, ruling in a grudging way, doing it for money, abusing authority, ruling impatiently, or the devil may just do this by hindering them from being together. Or, 
as Paul seems to have feared when he reports what he had heard, by tempting the sheep to cool in their love for their shepherd and to separate them from the flock. Which sheep do you think are easiest to pick off? The ones in the middle or the weak ones on the edge? Our hope is in no man. And that's where Paul goes next, I think very importantly, in verse 11. He's not their Savior. He's not their Messiah. And that's why he says in his next prayer, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. God will do this. He is at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Paul says, I have entrusted to him what he will finish, he will keep until that day. God will not finish the work until he's done. But what is Paul praying? That God would send us to you. God uses men in his wisdom. And our hope cannot be in them. I say only by the grace that God gives me to say it. Our hope is in the Lord, but God does equip the church. This is our vital supply line. Certainly the word and shepherds who minister the word. May the Lord help us to be wary of the attacks of the devil who would love to cut us off from what God intends for our good. Trust this will be a help to us to be wise to what the devil has done what God warns us about in his word, and to really thrive on what the Lord has provided for us in his word and through his people. May the Lord help us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign over all things. And even though, like the hymn writer says, this world is with devils filled and they seek to undo us, yet one little word shall fell them. And that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abides. Lord Jesus, you are the living word. You are the chief shepherd. You are the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And we trust you. We know that you are our shepherd. But in your wisdom, we know that also you have equipped your church with apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers. And this church here experienced the removal of one of those gifts in a great threat to their faith. But Lord, you sustained them. And I pray that you would do the same in our midst. And Lord, make us wise to the ways of the devil and the ways that he would seek to tempt us away from a good place. And make us vulnerable spiritually and get us weakened by our own choices and our own desires. Keep us from our own nearsightedness. Lord, we are your sheep. We thank you that you know what is best and you've given us in your word what is best for us. Help us to take that by faith and to live by it. We need your help in all of this. We commit ourselves to you, our great, our chief shepherd. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.